big topics, big ideas, and practical policy solutions. This is Leaders on the Frontier with your host, David Lease. It's February 14, 2023, and welcome to Leaders on the Frontier. My name is David Lease. Today, our topic is about COVID-19 and what do we know now in 2023. It's been some three years. It's hard to believe that we heard about that virus called COVID-19. So there were a lot of things that were told to us back then that we actually have looked at in terms of a lot of evidence and data. So the story that we were told initially is not really the same it is today. So as Canada begins reflecting on lessons learned coming out of COVID-19, we want to get into some of those, that data, and we want to do that with the help of an extraordinary researcher, a leader, Deanna McLeod. So I want to welcome you, Deanna. Uh, she is a medical peer review publications expert. These are larger words to describe an evidence-based data analysis expert. Again, another phrase that denotes a, a scientist who's the principal, strategy, uh, principal and lead strategist at Kaleidoscope Strategies. Welcome, Deanna. Thank you, David, for having me on your show. Well, Deanna, I'm just fascinated with your background because um, you truly are a, a, a scientist that I think comes at the whole issue of understanding COVID-19 and really helping us as Canadians understand what's all happened and where we're at today. So I really do appreciate you joining us. So Deanna, can you tell us more about your work and what do you do as a scientist? Um, yeah, so David, I um, support clinicians in Canada in preparing guidelines and review papers uh, for cancer treatment in Canada. So what that might look like is we come alongside of them and we'll do um, the systematic review that's associated with uh, a particular guideline. We'll collate the data, analyze it, uh, and work with the clinicians to layer in their clinical perspective. And then they'll use that to uh, set guideline policy for cancer care. Um, our, you know, the, uh, my firm, well, I started the firm in 2000. Uh, so we've been at this a good long while, 23 years now. Um, and my, my goal at the time was uh, to provide a, a national infrastructure to clinicians in preparing guidelines. And as you know, um, the way Canada, our medical system is organized in Canada, it's provincially based. And so one of the things that we noticed was that uh, some provinces had higher standards of care as it related to cancer care, access to better treatments, et cetera. Uh, and smaller provinces that were potentially less resourced had less access to these, uh, these agents. And so what we purpose to do uh, is to create a national infrastructure or support base for clinicians in organizing or providing the support that they would need to prepare a guideline. So that would be coordinating the groups, you know, experts across, the can across Canada. We would, um, you know, provide the research, uh, editorial potentially mm -hmm. support. Uh, and then we would also... Um, work with them to prepare the guidance and um, consider the perspectives. And so um, my particular background, I came from industry. So I, I uh, specialized in immunology and cognitive psychology. I did a pre-med at McMaster, which is the home of evidence-based medicine, uh, then jumped into industry for 10 years. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the things um, that I noted in my time in industry is that uh, there's a lot of innovation happening uh, there's a lot of um, great people, 
but one of the things that I noticed towards the end of my career, especially having served both as a sales representative uh, in, and worked in marketing and also medical affairs, was that at times, because they are, um, you know, beholden to their, their investors uh, and their shareholders, what they want to do is they want to make sure to, to sell products. And at times... Mm-hmm what that looked like was a bias towards uh, minimizing safety uh, elements and maximizing okay. benefits. So, so can I just back up for a sec? Sure, so as yeah. a scientist, you are looking at the big picture of data so that people who are in the health field can make better decisions. Is that right? Like in their That's treatments right. across yeah. the board. And then what's interesting as well as you're just getting into is that you I've not only worked as a scientist, but you've worked at the kind of commercial business side of part of the healthcare industry, which is very important, which is the pharmaceutical industry. Is that right? That's right. So I think that, you know, whenever I'm looking at COVID, I'm coming from a fairly unique perspective because what I'm doing is I'm able to layer in um, what I know of the pharmaceutical industry and their practices, uh, particularly Mm -hmm. as it relates to the marketing of products. Um, and so I'm always looking at what's happening through that lens, knowing how industry functions, uh, knowing how marketing messages occur. Uh, and then, of course, coming back, uh, you know, through our work supporting clinicians in the cancer world, we work across multiple disciplines. And one of the things mm-hmm. uh, that you may or may not know and your, you know, your audience or viewers may or may not know is that uh, healthcare tends to be very siloed. Uh, you know, so you'll get specialists that specialize in one given area. And I'll just give you an example. For instance, you know, in cancer research, you'll be dealing with medical oncologists who deal with systemic therapy. So cancer treatments like chemotherapy or, you know, a biologic that you're giving somebody for for cancer. Uh, Then there'll be radiation oncologists and surgeons. So those are the three primary disciplines that will be working in there. And, um, you know, each of them trusts that their colleagues uh, are reviewing the data and making good, solid recommendations that are rooted in evidence. Uh, and so we, we get a real great perspective of how the disciplines um, uh, function overall, but also how their perspectives are limited. And because we're working across disciplines all the time, we really get to see how they relate. And so that gave us great perspective as well for the COVID crisis and seeing okay. how the, the disciplines related and also how industry can manipulate those disciplines in order to advance their position um, by refer- withholding information from some people and, and giving other people the ability to make the decisions. And so wow. when we're, we're doing our review, then we're also looking at it from that perspective. And then, of course, finally, you know, 23 years of, of analyzing trials. And uh, I, I, I would say probably we're quite savvy about all the tricks that people can do. Uh, when preparing a study in terms of maximizing benefits and minimizing safety, just because of the number of studies that we've reviewed over time. And that's why I consider our group, um, you know, an analyst specialist in the sense of understanding data uh, and understanding how studies can be skewed in one direction or another. And so, of course, when we're looking at the COVID crisis uh, data, we're coming at it from that perspective as well. Okay. So So this is your very uniquely positioned then to look at, I refer to them as the breadcrumbs, the story around COVID-19. Because we, you know, when this all started coming out, we only saw part of it. And so there's been bits and pieces of data and information, and quite frankly, uh, total, in retrospect, total nonsense that was not factual based. 
but you've been able to look at the real story from different lenses, uh, different um, healthcare disciplines, but all related back to facts and evidence. So it's it's really exciting to have this conversation. So we've got a pretty far-reaching conversation, but I want to begin with a question. And that is, do you remember, Deanna, what, where, well, I could ask where you were when you first heard, of, heard about COVID-19, but when, what went through your mind as you started hearing more about uh, what COVID-19 was about? Um, I think that, you know, as with everybody, you know, I was a little taken aback, you know, you know, could it really be that we're in the midst of a pandemic and, you know, are things as dangerous as they seem? And, and you know, the headlines were quite alarmist. Um, and uh, so, you know, a lot of it was, I'm going to, you know, I took on the position of, as an expert in this particular discipline of cancer, I'm going to trust my public health officials to be navigating the data mm -hmm. and making good decisions in the public health yes. sphere. And I think that that's what a lot of people did. They basically assumed that we had professionals in place and that they were going to make um, uh, appropriate recommendations and uh, and review the data uh, appropriately. And so, you know, with lockdowns, because we have a virtual business, um, you know, I, I have a virtual business, our whole team kind of retreated to the cottage, so to speak. And, you know, as with many people kind of started to wait it out. Um, but then whenever the lockdowns were prolonged for a good amount of time and, you know, they started this nonsense of, of masking at all times, I mean, you know, the evidence side of me started to go, oh, I haven't had a chance to review that evidence, but I highly doubt that there's sufficient evidence to support these types of Was that right? So you started, your antenna went up kind of, was it early on, mid, mid, midway point, like after a year and you started wondering, well, well something's no. amiss here or what? Well, you know, in March, I mean, I'm a nerd, right? I mean, we're in evidence all the time. So the first thing I did mm -hmm. was pull the, the World Health Organization guideline on the rationalization for lockdowns and I read it. Uh, and it honestly sounded like a Chinese propaganda piece. <laughs> you know, okay. like, you know, the, the most excellent person of China says that lockdowns work and, you know, the, all, all of right. this kind of stuff. And so I was like, and we know that to be nonsense. Lockdowns don't work. Well, don't you work. know, at the time, who knew? I mean, I hadn't looked at the data yet. I mean, it looked like propaganda to me. And so I was, you know, the first thing that I thought is why, why do we have Chinese propaganda in the midst of our COVID policy? You know, this is, this is strange. This is an unusual intersection. Um, because in cancer, you know, a lot of the time, any studies that are done in China, what you do is you reproduce them in, in, you know, the Western world in order to make sure, uh, that what they've reported is actually accurate because, you know, there, there is another, you know, there are other influences that might, um, skew reporting in China versus here. Uh, they have got ideologies and mm -hmm. political views that, that might mm -hmm. make their scientists want to present data in a particular way. And so, you know, it's just good practice to always double check and to reproduce studies on our end. Um, and that's what okay. I'm used to. So I was very surprised to be seeing that we're relying on Chinese data and Chinese scientists to guide something as extraordinary and extreme an intervention as lockdowns. Um, yeah. And generally speaking, you know, the, the, the magnitude of the intervention, so this one would be locking down the free world, uh, one would expect that that would be based on the highest levels of evidence, which would be, you know, randomized controlled trials and that there was, you know, extensive uh, studying and uh, guideline preparation that had gone into this before you would go ahead and do that because it's common sense to think that there are going to be lots of repercussions to such an intervention, you know, economic, social, 
educational um, and fiscal. Uh, so, you know, the, I, we, I, I basically assumed and trusted that the, the specialists were doing it. But the first, the first clue that I had was whenever I picked up that World Health Organization guideline that was recommending uh, lockdowns and it, and it looked like Chinese propaganda. Okay, that's fascinating. So you were, you were on the case uh, fairly early on, Deanna. So speaking of the case, what we'd like to do now is bring up some uh, slides and and briefly move through them fairly quickly to just highlight some of the some of the the story that needs to be told around data and what the implication is. So can you start taking us through? And it's interesting. The title is the COVID nineteen crisis: Political Science One Hundred and One. Why did you call it? Political Science 101? Um, because I think that, that we, we've arrived at a point where there's a new type of science that's at play. Again, you know, my background is evidence-based medicine, and I was trained in that, and I've been working in that discipline for years, where, you know, studies are weighed and guideline, you know, recommendations are made. Um, and when you're making a recommendation, you, you need to factor in, in the way that you phrase it, both the level of mm -hmm. evidence so, you know, how, how sure we are that the effect that we're seeing is related to the actual intervention in question. And usually that's a large randomized controlled trial comparing um, the intervention to uh, a standard of care, right? Um, and so then you'd make that comparison. And, and if you're sure that this difference is due to the intervention, then you would say that's high levels of evidence. And then you would basically show that to a broad number of experts Again, in my discipline, what you'd want to do is send it across multiple medical oncologists if it's chemotherapy or multiple surgeons if it's surgical intervention. And then they would all say, you know, the level agreement is above 80%. Therefore, it's a strong recommendation. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you would never proceed with anything that's extraordinary, like locking people down without that type of evidence. Uh, yeah. And you certainly wouldn't make assertions publicly like lockdown save lives if you haven't mm -hmm. measured that in a well-designed trial and shown that mortality is lower. Um, so when I'm calling it political science, what, what I'm seeing here through the COVID crisis is basically science that's been manipulated to meet a certain direction or a political aim. I'm, I'm calling it political because I, I can't imagine what else it is. Maybe it's financial or whatever it is, but mm -hmm. it seems as though there's entities uh, that had uh, a design that they wanted to see these particular things. And then what they did is they worked the science around what conclusion they actually wow. want to arrive that, at. That's amazing. So you're saying that in your world, as a scientist focused on healthcare uh, helping healthcare practitioners make good decisions, you've got to be very rock solid on evidence and facts. And what you've figured out in the COVID-19 story is that something else was going on. There was a lot of manipulation of that information. So, okay, well, that's that's an amazing story. Well, let's dive in and look. let's look at the first slide then. Yeah, so the perspective that I would like to share with your audience particularly is layering in um, the marketing or the financial, the, the pharmaceutical perspective, because I don't think a lot of people really understand how that's influenced where we are. You know, I was thinking maybe I shouldn't have called it political science, but maybe I should have called it like, you know, financial sciences or, you know, something along the lines of, you know, science designed to make things seem one way that is going to profit uh, a certain group of people. 
you know, maybe we can save the guessing on who's profiting from this to the final slide, because I do have a slide on that. But right now, what we're looking at is a figure. And this is a figure that, you know, I basically created for my company a good long while ago. Um, and it, you know, on the on the the X axis, you have time and on the Y axis, you have, um, you know, treatment uptake. So the blue line there is, you know, we can imagine that that is uptake would be equal pharmaceutical sales. So, you know, as a, a drug gets adopted, so when it's in the development stage, so you've got phase one and two data or a phase three trial, when it's in development and they're being studied, there's no sales. So there's no uptake of, of the drug. Um, however, once the phase three data is available and it's positive, and it's approved by Health Canada, then what you do is you have um, uptake via academics initially. So they're the first ones to adopt. And then generally speaking, sorry, pardon? the people in the university. Yeah, academics are like the saying, people yeah. who are specialists. They're, do, they're doing the research. Uh, and then you okay. get community uptake would be people who, you know, mostly are treating patients, not necessarily have any personal research agendas. Uh, and they're, they're the last to uptake. And then as the community becomes more familiar with the, you know, the intervention, then you've got uh, increased uptake over time. So now when that, you say, when you say an intervention, Deanna, do you mean like a drug or a, like some type of medical treatment that yeah. people can sell? Is that so right? it, it could be anything. Um, so for instance, different interventions that have occurred through the COVID crisis would be lockdowns. That was an intervention. Oh, I see. Yes. Uh, right. Masking was another one. Social distancing was another one. And, uh, and of course the vaccines were another one. So those were the primary interventions that were deployed by the public health officials in order to control the COVID uh, crisis. Um, but I, what I'd love to bring to your uh, attention is that the pharmaceutical companies have specific goals at different times of development. So in the pre-development, in the development stage, uh, they have a pre-marketing campaign. So they're actively spending money. They're actively working with uh, doctors, publishing papers, doing lots of activity um, of various kinds uh, to generate an understanding of the clinical need. So for instance, uh, you know, in the COVID crisis, which was interesting is you had lots of headlines uh, and the headlines, you know, were, you know, COVID is deadly, right? So what they were doing is they were working within the psyche, within the minds of the people who are viewing that to help them understand and recognize the need for a treatment or an intervention to help them through this perceived crisis uh, because, you know, COVID was everywhere and it was deadly. Um, and so that is a specific, that was a particular aim. And one of the things that I was very much aware of is that you had slogans and marketing phrases so I recognized all of those, uh, you know, two weeks to flatten the curve that comes from a marketing agent. You know, that's a that's a marketing slogan. That's not <laughs> you know, that's not public health. Oh, really? talking. Well, somebody yeah. developed that with the idea of seeding fear or action that you can do this, then we could yeah. be better. Is that right? Wow. So this is all deployed in order. I'm I'm going to argue that this was all part of this this one segment, which is called. Uh, generating an understanding of a clinical need. And then whenever the vaccines were launched, then they shifted into the section one, which was positioning their product to meet the need, right? So they underscore the need in the minds of their audience. 
And then the second one is they position their product to be dense. So then, of course, vaccines are going to be the solution. You already heard that before the vaccines were even out, right? Vaccines, we're going to get through this using vaccines. Like that was something that was already, you know, they were already preceding uh, us towards uh, that particular thing. And then, of course, in the marketing phase, what you want to do is you continually want to minimize the risks and maximize the benefits. So really keep that in mind. Uh, a lot of people don't actually know that that's occurring when it's occurring. And I want to walk you through a few uh, of the interventions that occurred. And I want to explain to you how they did that. Uh, and, wow. you know, not necessarily how they did that, but but look at the data mm-hmm. in light of that particular perspective. So but, maybe but Deanna, for the sake it, of time. It strikes me that this is a very helpful lens uh, to kind of understand the story, like before you sell anything like an intervention, like mask wearing, um, vaccines, any of that, you have to seed or position the case that, well, frankly, uh, out of you, you need to take this, you need to do this, so we can we can be okay, right? So this mm-hmm. is this is a very useful lens to see that. Yeah, I do, and I think that it's going to make a lot of things make sense. So what I'm going to argue is that the pre-marketing campaign was had the goal of making people understand that COVID was deadly. So that mm. that is the thing. So what they're doing, one of the things that you need to understand, and I'll just do a little bit of a side thing here, is that vaccines are big business. And I'm going to explain to you why vaccines are such big business. When I'm working in cancer, and this is just something that everybody understands, you know, development starts in the very late stages. So if you're, you know, uh, you know, fourth line advanced cancer, you've only got a couple months to live. This is where they do a lot of um, studies exploring new treatments. Uh, you know, they don't really know very much about this new treatment, uh, but they're going to explore it there. And the people who sign on to those studies basically say, I have very little to live. I'm, you know, maybe this treatment will help me, but I'm going to be altruistic to a degree and I'm going to allow myself, you know, I'm allow that, them to experiment on me because I know that my life is short at this point. So generally speaking, as a study, as an agent proves to be safe and active, you move it forward very, very, very gradually until only agents that have been proven safe and effective through years Mm -hmm. of testing, extensive testing, are then used on people with early stage breast cancer uh, because we don't want to worsen the outcomes. We already know that they have cancer and that that's very difficult. So we don't want to add treatment burden onto cancer burden. So, you know, you have this very systematic approach. Now, interestingly enough, your market, the amount of money that you can make is dependent on the amount of money you can make is dependent on the market. So in advanced cancer, you have a very small market. There's only a few people who are, are, you know, very close to death, whereas, you know, or late stages. Um, And then you have an earlier market, which is people who've just had surgery and they're likely going to live 10 to 15 years. And so... Um, generally speaking, drug companies want to move their product to the earliest stages possible to get the biggest market. But vaccines are completely different because vaccines, what you can do is you can start with an experimental treatment. And then basically, because you're arguing that it's going to prevent disease, you're able to give it to healthy people, which is an extraordinarily huge market. So everybody, you can argue that everybody needs to have disease prevention. And so because the market is so big, even if the cost of the agent is small, the amount of money that you make is extraordinary. 
Um, and the beautiful thing, wow. and I'm going to, I'm saying this uh, in, in a certain perspective, but the, the great thing about vaccines is that, you know, when you're dealing with treatment, you actually have to profile a patient and, and prove that the treatment works. Whereas with a vaccine, all that you have to do if you want to sell it is make somebody afraid of the worst outcomes. So wow. the goal of a vaccine campaign specifically is to portray the worst possible outcome and make people who are healthy and not necessarily at risk feel afraid of that particular outcome. Because of that way, you're able to sell the most vaccines. But let's face it, it takes a lot for people to willingly take on a vaccine, like to, to inject that into their body. Is that it? Yeah. And so, you know, whenever, I don't know, you know, whenever you started to, when I started to look at the headlines, what I noticed was um, that, uh, you know, they were very alarmist, you know, such and such, you know, so-and-so dies, you know, if anybody died, <laughs> you know, all of a sudden they would, their face would be all over the headlines, right? So-and-so died from okay. COVID and, uh, you know, emergencies are overflowing and then you get yeah. very sincere doctors, you okay. know, coming and say, yes, my emergency is overflowing. I mean, it, it, you know, the, the information is taken out of context, you know, the emergency rooms in, in Ontario have been um, compromised for over 10 years. And during seasonal flus, they're always overflowing. Um, so what do you mean they're compromised? In the sense that they're all struggling. They're right? under-resourced. They, for years, they've been struggling. Yeah. yeah, they've all been struggling, yeah. So, you know, out of context, right? So you can just zoom in on that one little thing. Uh-oh, mm. you know, I had a COVID hmm. case and my, and my, you know, emergency room is overflowing. And that's what hits the headlines. So that very selective, that very biased focused made me think that somebody was orchestrating this because we, you, we were only yeah. ever seeing that one particular perspective. And just on that note, when we're thinking about COVID being deadly, and I, I'm, I'm 100% sure that all of you can imagine the headlines that we saw. I mean, people were terrified, right? I remember the John Hopkins dashboard. I don't know if you ever saw that one, David, but you yes, know. Yes, I do. I remember yeah. that very well. As well as the Imperial College of London's models. Yeah, I, I love that one because, you know, it was always the worst case scenario. It was always cumulative deaths, right? So it didn't matter if the deaths were like, you know, the very beginning of the pandemic and that the deaths had come down dramatically and we were all safe. Looking at cumulative deaths kept that concern about COVID at its height, right? like this many and this many, you know, what you really should be yeah. looking at is the number of events over time. And, and I should just remind people, because uh, it, it seems so long ago, but there was yep. a model done by a number of them. Uh, I can mention them all uh, by heart, but one of them, the most famous one, I that predicted literally hundreds of millions of people would be dying around the world. So this was definitely, um, the, the narrative was that COVID-19 is deadly, and this is going to be like the Spanish flu or SARS-2 on steroids. It's going to be a very high mortality rate and very, very infectious that's going to um, go around the entire world uh, very quickly. That was the narrative, right? Yeah. So this slide here, um, I just want to bring to your attention because um, on the left, this was a, a study that was published. And one of the things that we do the moment we start an investigation is you always look at the, the mechanism of action or the pathophysiology, how is it actually acting in the body? Um, mm. And, and what is the mechanism of action so that you can, you can kind of appreciate and understand, you know, who's at risk and who's not at risk. And this paper here on the left, I found this, this schematic, and it's particularly brilliant. Um, on the left hand side, it talks about, you know, a young person who's contracted COVID-19 
Um, and their innate immune system kicks in. It's the top left-hand corner of that particular uh, figure. Their innate system kicks in and uh, it activates and, it, and it, very, it very much limits the amount of, of virus that can actually get into the upper airways. Uh, and that's, you know, you don't need any antibodies or anything. That's your innate immune system. You've got, you know, a strong reaction. Uh, and then if there is a virus that gets down into the, into the, the lower part of the lung, uh, you've got antibodies that identify and neutralize that virus. And, and it never actually gets into the cells, the epithelial cells, um, and it never enters into the blood. So for the most part, anybody with a robust innate immune system really was not at risk of um, any severe outcomes from COVID because the virus never got into their blood. And it's only whenever mm. it gets into their blood that you actually get things like coagulation or inflammation associated with the spike protein that's on the virus. So immediately we were like, okay, so this is going to be, uh, you know, something that's going to affect the elderly based on the pathophysiology. The right-hand panel shows um, how, you know, older people's innate immune system isn't so strong. So they get higher viral load. The more viral load they have, uh, the deeper the virus can go into their lungs. Okay. So, so this kind of graph, and it's hard to, to totally see it there, but basically you're saying that your investigation into COVID-19 could illustrate that it was going to be okay. And in the, in the sense that there were particular people, namely older persons with, with more, um, uh, challenged health issues were the most vulnerable. Is that it? Yeah, that well said. So kind of bringing it down, um, every young people's innate immune system is strong enough to halt the virus in its tract, and it basically has minimal effects. Whereas okay. older people, uh, they don't have that same innate protection, and so they're more susceptible. And so what we were going to look for then, based on that, was... Um, probably some deaths in the elderly. And that's what we're okay. showing on the, the right-hand side there. All right. So protect the, the, protect the vulnerable, namely the elderly. Don't vaccinate the kids and healthy adults. Is that it? Yeah. Or so, I mean, I think that's multifaceted, right? Because before we, <laughs> I, I probably wouldn't even recommend vaccines at any point in a pandemic. I'm really not sure what the logic is there because you've got a, mm. you know, a circulating mm -hmm. virus. And so you'd probably be driving it to mutations which, mm -hmm. you know, some could argue actually happened. Um, but one of the things that I did want to say is that there was a long-term care, um, there was a Royal Commission report on long-term care facilities that was published probably in and around June 2020, so six months into the pandemic. And, and what they did was they, you know, did a complete a thorough analysis. And what they found was that 81% of all the deaths in Canada six months into the pandemic, we're in long-term care facilities. So again, that makes sense because we know that it should be affecting the elderly. And there were practically no deaths. And the deaths in the, the right-hand figure are indicated in the red. So, uh, you know, we did a, a year analysis on that right-hand panel. And so hospitalization um, is in the blue. ICU is gold and red is death. And you can see that, you know, just by just by a, an initial glance that the death was occurring in long-term care facilities. And so one of the things that we realized right away was, okay, so we're probably looking at, uh, that's of course where you have a greatest uh, concentration of people who are at risk, but immediately we thought there must be aerosol transmission. So this virus must be moving through the air, right? And if it's aerosol transmission, then ventilation is the key intervention that's needed in order to protect the oh, elderly. Really? 
So just to be clear, though, on what you're saying, is the data was confirming that COVID-19 was a threat to some people, and we needed to take that seriously, namely the elderly and the vulnerable, select people with like compromised immune. But the facts are that COVID-19 was not as deadly as they were making it out to be. Is that, because otherwise, um, like I, I think I come across so many Canadians. I, I went on a flight just recently and, and, you know, my heart goes out to people. They're still wearing masks and they, and, and honestly, I'm not criticizing their choice to do that, but there's so many people that are still living in this kind of fear under the false assumption that those masks are going to prevent them from dealing with COVID-19. Is that right? How, well, how do, we, how I do, do you look at that? I do believe that um, the communication was that, you know, both, you know, social distancing, locking down, masking, were all a, a layer of protection from this deadly COVID-19. Yeah. Uh, that was the messaging. I don't think that that was accurate or grounded in evidence. You know, once the studies were actually done, we realized that it's aerosol, which means that masking won't work. Uh, the ventilation was it that we should have been sensitive, especially to our vulnerable elderly people who were in long-term care facilities and breathing each other's air, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's mm -hmm. traveling through community living situations. So we should have been particularly sensitive to those. Um, and, but, but what it was, it was a brilliant way to drive home the need for the vaccine. And that is a successful pre-marketing campaign. And we've never done this, right, Deanna, in terms of not only this type of use of this kind of gene therapy, in quote, but on this type of scale around the world. We've never done this, have we, Deanna? Well, again, if we would think back to a development cycle, what you tend to do is you tend to take a new technology like gene therapy that's being used as a vaccine, and you would test it on a small number of people, make sure that it's rigorous, and then you slowly expand it, uh, you know, into sicker populations or broader populations, yeah. mm -hmm. making sure that it's working. But instead, what we have here is declarations of safe and effective, and then rolling it out to everybody else and then waiting for somebody to prove that it isn't safe or effective. Because it's right? impossible. We would know it's safe because no, we don't have the data. So it's yeah. interesting. It's a wordplay. And again, this makes me think of the brilliant marketers who are behind this. And I'm saying that, you know, tongue in cheek, but, wow. you know, if you, if usually the standard is that you prove safety through rigorous testing, right? But mm -hmm. through a, a crafty change of words, you can declare safety and then say it's up to you to prove that it's not safe, which wow. is what they this did. This is stunning. I, I think most Canadians would be shocked to hear this kind of perspective because it's totally taking this COVID story and kind of putting it upside down. Mm -hmm. So again, when we're looking at the mechanism of action, we're thinking, okay, is it even plausible that this is going to help? So we know that it's going to cause autoimmune reactions. But the other thing that's interesting about this is that um, the, the mucosal membrane, like a respiratory infection comes in through the mucosal membrane, and it's a separate system of, of immune response where it's a mucosal. It's like the mucus in your your airways traps the virus and then you've got an innate immune system and then the mediator is IgA not IgG so these vaccines are producing the wrong antibody the wrong type of antibody to be able to fight infection up here and in fact those antibodies that it's producing in your body aren't even able to get up into your respiratory system to help out so again from our perspective when we began to look at the data we basically said okay we're going to expect a lot of side effects and we're going to expect 
low efficacy. And so what I have here um, is our classic level of evidence, and it might be a little bit too complicated for your viewers, but if you're going to make a strong recommendation, you want to be up at the top at level one, and you want to have a randomized controlled trial that's proving that this thing works. So we looked at the randomized controlled trial for Pfizer, and we said, you know, this is the lead trial. Is it actually showing that it works? And, you know, of course, in the headlines, uh, it's like it's 90 you know, 91% effective for fighting, you know, symptomatic COVID and it's 96% effective for severe COVID. So it's not going to, you know, it's going to keep you out of the hospital. So these ideas were planted in our minds. But one of the things that they didn't actually look at, which is striking, is they didn't actually look at transmission. And so in order to be, uh, be able to justify mass vaccination, you actually have to show that it actually stops infection and you can't share it. And they never did that, David. Um, they never actually looked at transmission and it was in the actual study itself. So there was absolutely no basis at any time for a mass vaccination rollout because they couldn't prove that it stopped transmission. Wow. So there was no evidence for that. So they should not be calling it a vaccine by any normal standards because it and they certainly couldn't justify mass vaccination. In your mind, and I know I'm, uh, we only have so much time here, but what what is your conclusion then? Like the role, the role of funding or uh, conflicts of interest here. What what does what's your conclusion here uh, ultimately, Deanna? Yeah, I think that uh, you know again, I was I was saying that I'm arguing that this was an, a very elaborate um, marketing campaign. It had the marks of a marketing campaign right from the beginning. Lockdowns and masking and the horrific headlines were all designed to underscore the need for the vaccine. Um, the data, the way that it was presented uh, and the way that it was marketed was more like a marketing campaign uh, where they're minimizing safety issues by manipulating the data or showing it in a certain light and maximizing benefit by showing that in a, like they, they always show the efficacy in the best possible light and the safety in the, another light. So when you see those types of things, to me, it was thinking, okay, so something's actually happening here. Um, why is our public health acting like a pharma company? Why are they... Mm doing a farm, why, why are they acting in the role of pharmaceuticals? And so our team basically started looking at conflicts of interest. So a conflict of interest is basically when um, there's another interest, another party who's standing to benefit financially from a certain outcome. And they have, if they have sway over the recommendations that are being made, then that could actually influence how that's done. And I just want to, you know, this is an elaborate picture of what's happening, but I think that what most Canadians and even our medical institution isn't aware of that in the last 10 years, we've moved from being a national pharmaceutical strategy to global pharmaceutical strategy. Mm. Most of the mm. strategies are cooked up at a global level and deployed in all the different countries simultaneously. Um, and they pick, they pick their best and their the best and their brightest, and they put them on the global team. And these people do that. So we follow what happens in the states, CDC and the NIAID, very closely. And what we probably don't realize there is that the scientists there, and for instance, there's scientists there that have the patent for the spike protein that's being used in these vaccines. Every time a vaccine is used, they benefit, they profit, they get royalties from it. So Okay, so, so just to back up for a sec, so you're saying that there's a lot of conflicts of interest here that need to be examined, and they bring a different story to all the different interests of why these actors would 
hype up the, the, the danger and threat to COVID-19 because they had a commercial benefit. You follow the money. That's part it. of the story. But also part of it is that Canada tends to follow, along with many other Western countries, among others, the primary health organizations based in the United States, namely the Center for Disease Control and the National Institute for Health. Is that yeah. right? That's right. Um, and so, and then of course the World Health Organization and the World Health Organization at this point is trying to get member states to sign a treaty that will basically say that we're behold, we have to do what they say the next pandemic. So, you know, we won't have our own, we're going to be handing wow. off our decision make power. So this to, isn't over. It could happen again, Deanna. Is that what you're saying? Well, they're, they're right now they're planning for the next pandemic, right? Uh, and they're basically consolidating this particular approach of lockdowns and contact tracing and all of this other business. Um, and again, I think that we need to be really concerned about that as Canadians, because there's a lot of commercial interests at play here that would be shaping this. And it may not be for the benefit of, of Canadians. It might just be for the commercial benefit of a lot of these players who are influencing this policy. But just a last point, David, because we really have to um, wrap this up. I know that you've been generous with your time. Um, but NACI is our national um, immunization, you know, our independent body that advises regarding immunizations in, in Canada. And one of the things that people might not be aware of is that when the pandemic was declared, all of our research power, our Canadian tax dollars, were... Uh, deployed according to global priorities for research related to this actual particular pandemic. Um, and what that did is that the head of NACI, when the pandemic was declared, um, Carolyn Kwok Tan at the time, she received $2.5 million in research funding. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, in order to study COVID or look at, you know, the, the patterns of infectious disease and her chair, uh, Shelley Deeks, she received a grant of $3.5 million um, at the time. And as she was the person, so Carolyn Kwok Tan was there whenever they approved the vaccine. And Shelley Deeks has been the one that's approved, for instance, the boosters that were approved without any data whatsoever. Um, and so these people, it's hard to imagine that um, they're able to objectively evaluate these vaccines. Uh, a, they have a specialty bias because they're already people who are proponents of vaccination. Uh, and B, their research careers are, are being um, propelled forward considerably based on this COVID crisis. So they're, they're again, profiting uh, handsomely from this COVID crisis. So it would be hard to imagine that they could say, oh, wait, I don't want the $2.5 million or the $3.5 million. There's really no problem here. All that we have to do is isolate our, you know, get some better ventilation in our old age homes, make sure we get some early treatment in here and we're going to be fine. Um, so, you know, they have vested interests. And I think that, you know, before we step in, you know, as we're looking at all this, I think that we have to be considering these interests and the influence that they're having on our, our public health. And public health, of course, um, has, you know, they're motivated, they have a financial motivation as well, because the biggest uh, budget item for the federal government and the provincial governments is healthcare. And so if a vaccine company comes in and says, I can basically prevent disease uh, by, you know, you administering my cheap vaccine, and I can also prevent, you know, I can do it in clinics, so you don't actually have to pay doctors, which is your highest budget item. 
one of your highest budget items, then there's a financial benefit for you to be pushing vaccines. And so, you know, this type of vaccine hype has been going on for a long time. And a lot of it is based in the commercial interest of trying to minimize healthcare costs. But I think, I guess my point here is, again, you know, when we're evaluating guidelines and recommendations, you always have to look at the conflicts of interest and you have to see how they've shaped the policy. And if you're not doing that, um, you're leaving yourself wide open for, you know, global commercial interests that can come in and really hijack our healthcare system, which is, you know, a Canadian treasure. It's one of the things that we value most here in Canada. And so I don't think any of us want to see that put out, put at risk. And I don't think any of us want to go through what we did already, uh, you know, with, with uh, this particular thing, but there's a, an in- intensive walkthrough of this particular conflict of interest data that, again, is available if anybody wants to learn more about how these global interests have influenced and, I would say, argue, hijacked our healthcare system. Well, you know, um, so I guess as we look at this kind of information, Canadians are really confronted with, um, for themselves, thinking through um, how valid this perspective is, and, and it's certainly part of the COVID-19 story. So as we look at uh, bringing this to a close, Deanna, where do you see hope and what, what kind of recommendations do you have for Canadians as they look at this and say, what, what can they do uh, as they look to action and dealing with this? Um, that's a really great question, um, David. And um, I think that we all need to become a little bit more savvy Um, One of the things that I would say was true for myself is I just implicitly trusted um, my public health officials and thought that they had my best interests in mind um, when they were making their recommendations. But I think it's really important for for everybody to make sure to check the facts and check the evidence and check the story to make sure that it lines up. Um, You know, from a, a leader perspective, we need to be Uh, looking at these conflicts of interest and looking at the policies and we need to hold the people who've made those changes accountable Um, and we need to analyze to do a post-mortem to figure out what influences were at play to to shut the doors to those influences moving forward um, to make sure to bring that decision making back down to a lower level a decentralized level um, where people who can see and respond quickly and make interventions can and weigh the evidence uh, can can double check the people who are making the recommendations and move forward that way. So, you know, I say go back to the old way of doing things, decentralized evidence-based care, I think is, has been how we've arrived at the progress we've seen. I mean, the advances we've seen in cancer are amazing. I mean, personalized medicine, we, you know, you, you can profile somebody and tailor a treatment to them. So why we're doing these archaic one-size-fit-all type of things for uh, COVID patients is beyond me or a COVID crisis. You know, it, it seems like bloodletting or something very <laughs> arcane, you know, it's just where medicine is way more sophisticated than that. And I think that we need to give uh, the people who actually are able to make these types of decisions, the evidence-based scientists, uh, the ability to lead us forward in that particular area. Deanna McLeod, scientist and uh, leader, Thank you very much for your courage and for bringing us this very fascinating overview around COVID-19. Thank you very much for all your uh, your voice on this important topic and all the very best to you. Well, thanks very much, David. Thanks for having me on. I hope this is uh, beneficial to your viewers. Thank you, Deanna.
And thank you everyone for joining us uh, today for this uh, uh, discussion regarding this important topic. We want to uh, welcome you to get involved with Frontier if you're not familiar with us at our website at www.fcpp.org. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter and be sure to continue to look at this important issue, uh, particularly through the Citizens Inquiry effort as Frontier is a partner with that effort. Thank you for watching Leaders on the Frontier. We're a nonpartisan think tank. We explore ideas, policy, and practical solutions that can make a difference in the lives of Canadians. We do not accept any government funding. We work for you. Thank you for supporting Frontier. Visit fcpp.org to give. While you're there, be sure to check out our latest articles and research. Without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking, nor are you free. Comment below. We'd love for you to join the conversation.